um, really a transition in the book of Genesis. Uh, we, we have been studying, uh, you know, from chapter 1 through 11, we see God's relationship. I think we ended last week with my slide thing not working, and now it may not be working again. We put new batteries in, I promise. Maybe just make sure I'm clicked on there, Jesse. I'm going to try this again. Hey, look, it's working. Awesome. All right, so in Genesis, what we've seen so far in verses, excuse me, chapters 1 through 11, can really be boiled down to God's relationship with the whole world. We see him creating the world and the galaxies and, and everything in them. And then we see him creating mankind. And, and it goes to the details of what that um, looked like. And, and in my Bible, it actually says this is the history of God's creation, uh, implying that it's, it's not a, uh, a generic uh, kind of analogy or uh, some sort of poetic language, but this is how God created the heavens and the earth. And then he created man, and then what we see in chapter 1 through 11 is that what man did with what God gave him is he, he destroyed it. He, he disobeyed one command, and because of his disobedience, because of sin entering the world, it's all enslaved to sin. And Romans chapter 8 even says that the world is groaning, the, the earth itself is groaning, waiting for the redemption. Uh, and we see that as the, even the tectonic plates kind of push against each other and they create mountains and, and volcanoes and earthquakes. And, and the world is groaning, waiting for God to set everything in place again. And yet what we see is chapter 1 through 11 is God's relationship to the whole world. And then chapter 12 through 50 is all about God's relationship with one family. And that's Abraham and his descendants. And as we look at this relationship with Abraham's family, we could quickly say, wow, there must be something amazing about them that he chose them. And I would say to you that they were nothing. And that's why he chose them. He chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, to confound the world. Why would he choose them? And hopefully you're kind of having that same reaction as we read through these chronicles of Abraham's family, his descendants. It's like, why would God choose these people? But he chooses things that are not in order to do things that he wants to do so that he gets the glory. And so in Genesis chapter 12 through 50, we see God's relationship with Abraham's family. And really, Genesis is about relationship. It's about God's relationship with mankind. And Abraham, in particular, starts in chapter 12, and he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and in you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So they've been blessed, not just so they can keep it for themselves, but so they can be a blessing to the whole world. And so... Chapter 12 through 25, we see uh, the family of Abraham. Uh, about chapter 25 through 26 pertains to Isaac, his son. Uh, chapter 27 through 36, we've seen the life of Jacob. And then in chapter 37 through 50, primarily, the, the main character is going to be Joseph. Even though at the end we'll see Jacob blessing his sons, we see 37 through 50, Joseph becomes the main character. Now, Joseph's an interesting character because there are two that I can think of that in the Bible, we know Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that all have sinned, 
all have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, in Scripture, there are a few characters that really, it doesn't highlight any of their sin. One is in the book of Daniel. Daniel, you don't see any of him faltering. Uh, But here in Joseph, we don't see any sin. Does that mean that he was sinless? Absolutely not. But we find out that the Holy Spirit's emphasis on Joseph is that he is a type of Jesus Christ, and we're going to unpack that today. And so as we begin in verse 1 of chapter 37, it says, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And so we start with Jacob, even though he's kind of passing off the, the narrative for right now. And as Jacob is mentioned, it says that he dwelled in the land. Why is this important? It's a huge transition because the entire last chapter, chapter 36, if you were here last week, was all about Esau and his descendants. And where did they dwell? They had sons and daughters and then they left the land. They left the place of God's blessing and they went into a place called Mount Seir, which is south and east of the Dead Sea. And, and it's in the mountains there that he dwells and he starts his own people group. If you remember the blessing, the, as, as God told Rebecca, she had, two, she had twins in her womb and they were, they were already arguing and battling each other, creating all kinds of turmoil in her womb. She said, why is there so much turmoil within me? And God famously says, because there are two nations in your womb. And out of your womb will come two people groups. And we see this fulfilled in chapter 36. A people group that will primarily, in pride and selfishness and in sin and and trusting in the strength of the flesh, will build a nation, Esau. And I don't know about you guys, but as I've been reading this week, anytime the word Esau or Edom or Mount Seir, all these names that I just studied last week, it's changed the way for me personally, that I've read the Bible this year. And I say that having been reading the Bible through every year for the last 14 years, it's unlocked something that I didn't notice before. So don't overlook the genealogies. There's a lot of stuff in there that really makes things a lot more clear. you know. And so chapter 37, we see now Jacob dwelled in the land. But you'll notice that it says he dwelled in the land where, there is, where his father was a stranger. Well, that's interesting because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. It says that Abraham was called out of where he lived in Haran and really farther than that to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. But after he died... He had, even really before he died, he hadn't actually obtained the land as property, as his inheritance. And so he dwelled there by faith. Faith in something that hadn't come to pass yet. And it says in there in verse 8 that he went out not knowing where he was going. So by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, just like Isaac And just like now, Jacob and then his sons. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So they have inherited a land that they don't physically own, and yet God says, I'm going to give it to you. 
For he looked for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They were dwelling in a land that they did not have a green card to. They did not have citizenship in. They were foreigners. They were foreigners. They were strangers. And so as they dwell in this land, it's by faith. They don't own it. They, they don't even have a house in it, although they did build some houses in it. We read a couple weeks ago. So verse 1 says that they dwelled in the land of Canaan as strangers. So verse 2 continues and says, this is the history of Jacob. And I wrote in my Bible and his family. What it means there, and the New Living Translation says this in verse 2, this is the account of Jacob's family. Because it'd be interesting to say, this is the history of Jacob. Didn't we already get done with his, his story? We kind of already read it. But this is the history of his descendants. This is the continuation of his descendants, the account of Jacob's family. So it says there, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, guess what? They hated him. And they could not even speak peaceably to him. They couldn't even find anything nice to say to him. So Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers. He's a 17-year-old. And he's a teenager. And he's the youngest, almost. He's the second youngest. But I want you to think about this. Why Why would Jacob give so much favor to Joseph? Uh, number one, he's make, made him a leader over his brothers. He listens to him when he tattletales. He gives him a coat of many colors. And some of you have seen the musical. I have too. No, no, I had, I've seen Fiddler on the Roof. Sorry, I haven't seen this one. Um, but, but in this musical, it, it, he has, he's adorned in a coat or a garment with many colors, which is cool. I mean, it did cost a lot of money to purchase a garment with multiple colors. The dyeing wasn't as simple or cheap. It was expensive. But the word there actually means that it's a garment of many pieces. It's, it's, a, it's a loose translation. And what that means is that it was the garment with big sleeves. Now, for you children of the 80s, this does not mean puffy shoulders and big hair. What this means is, is that the big sleeves were for people. You don't put big sleeves on somebody that's carrying materials and working all the time. It's going to tear up your garment. Although I was working with shingles this weekend, and I wish I would have had big sleeves because I'm all scarred up. But a person that was going to labor would actually wear one with short sleeves. A person that would be a foreman uh, would have big sleeves, maybe like blue collar versus white collar. And so Joseph is given a role as a manager. As a young man, you would think that he would have to put in his time before he would be able to be in charge. But think of it this way. 
Who was Jacob's favorite wife? Rachel. And who was her firstborn son? Joseph. And so in his mind, this is the one that would receive the inheritance. So Israel showed favoritism towards his brothers. Now, Joseph was young, and he was a tattletale. And I don't care who you are or what garment you're wearing, when you're the younger sibling and you start pointing out the older sibling's faults, they are, they're going to hate you. They're going to. It's just part of the whole deal. But the firstborn was his fav- of his favorite white Rachel, and he gave him a special tunic. So not only was this evidence that he's playing favorites or favoritism, by the way, Jacob was a recipient of favoritism from his mom, right? Uh, he, he was his mom's favorite. Esau was his dad's favorite. So favoritism was a family heritage that he'd also passed on. But notice here, it wasn't just evidence of his father's favoritism towards him. It was also signifying his choice of Joseph as his heir. And so Joseph's brothers hated him for this because he was greatly loved personally, but also because he was the chosen choice of the inheritance among all 12 brothers. Now, the idea that we as believers are chosen by God is a family secret. It's not necessarily something that gains converts. Because when you tell people that God chose you and he's called you to something, if they're non-believers, that makes them hate you, naturally. Oh, you're chosen of God. Awesome. They look at you like you have a God complex. But once you're in the family of God, and you've been, I mean, they killed Jesus because he said he was the son of God, right? Oh, you're the son of God. That's blasphemy. You're, you're attributing something to God that we don't agree with. And yet, for any time that scripture mentions that we are chosen by God, it is for the believer to keep as a keepsake to go, man, I, I don't feel worthy. And then we read in Scripture, you were chosen before you were even born. God chose you while you were in your mother's womb. That's meant to be something to go, he chose me. I didn't choose him. This wasn't a mistake. He did it on purpose. He chose me before I made that decision. He chose me before I did whatever. How could God love a person like me knowing all the things that I've already done? And I would submit to you that Scripture teaches that God knows all the things you'll ever do, and he chose you anyway. He chose you before you were in your mother's womb. He chose to die on the cross for our sin before he was even born. He chose to save mankind before we sinned against him. You know the whole incident in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit even though God told them not to? God knew they were going to do that. Jesus wasn't plan B. He was plan A. And so all of that to say... uh, it still doesn't mean that people won't hate us because we say that we're chosen. And so, continuing on in verse 5, it says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So they don't like him because he's the favorite, and that he's the youngest, that probably didn't help him. They don't like him because he's in charge, and now... 
God gives him dreams and he shares them openly. And it says that they hated him even more. Verse 6, so he said to them, please hear this dream, which I've dreamed. Okay, so they're going to hear him out. And he says, there, were, there we were, and we were binding sheaves. Uh, you've Probably, if you were raised in church, you've heard the song, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. And I'll stop there because I'll, I'll butcher it, because I wasn't raised in church, but I have heard that song. But bringing in the sheaves is what they would do when they would cut down the wheat and then they would bundle it up. They didn't have hay bales. They didn't have tractors to bale it. And then they would carry in the sheaves. And what it says here is that his dream was about, uh, there they were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, he says, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. So the increase of my labor was bigger than yours. Interesting, because he didn't have to do labor. And then on top of that, your sheaves that you brought in, uh, they bowed down to mine. They were subservient to mine. They were less than. And his brothers said to him, will you indeed reign over us? They immediately interpreted his dream. Are you saying that you're going to reign over us? Not just be our shop steward, not just be our manager, but you're going to be reigning over us like a king? Because you wouldn't bow down to just anybody. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so, look at this, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream. And he didn't learn his lesson, apparently. He went ahead and told that dream too. And maybe Joseph at this point is saying, well, they hate me anyway. I may as well just be myself. Maybe we could take a lesson even from this. People are going to hate you. Some of you cannot stand the thought of somebody possibly having a negative thought about you. But haters gonna hate, right? That's the modern day proverb. They may as well hate you for you telling the truth. They may as well hate you for you being yourself. I'm saying this as a person that spent my whole middle school and high school and then college career trying to be what people wanted me to be, trying to be what people would like or what I thought they would like. And guess what? There were still people that hated me. And even those people that I acted like somebody else around, they didn't even care what I was like because they were all doing the same thing. They were trying to put forth their best foot and be liked. They weren't paying attention to me at all. They were only thinking about themselves. And so here, Joseph, he dreams another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. I don't know what he expected them to say at this point. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now think about it. Sun and moon, 11 stars. He's one of 12 brothers. You could easily see where this is going. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. And he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But notice this, his father kept the matter in mind. 
So God gives Joseph dreams. Joseph shares his dreams with his family. He makes his family angry by simply sharing what he's dreamed. Now, he doesn't at this point interpret it to mean anything. He's just telling them the dream that they had. Have any of you ever dreamed something and then blamed your spouse for it? Like they did something you didn't like in the dream and you're like, I can't believe you said that in my dream. They're being held accountable. You know, like, I don't know. Maybe you've not done that. But here we have two dreams and two implications. Now, in the New Testament, there are uh, dreams and visions. These, uh, when, in, in Joel, it actually said, your young men will be bold and your, your old men will have visions. And, and, and in the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God gave gifts to the church. And one of those gifts is prophecy, foretelling the word of God, saying things that God's laid on your heart, and yet many times it's, it's given evidence where the dream is told and then someone has to, the, the person get, that receives the dream doesn't understand it, but the person that hears it does and is able to give an interpretation. We see that also in the gift of tongues. What's interesting here is we have two groups of gifted people. We have Joseph gifted with the dreams and we have his brothers that hate him, but that are also able to interpret his dreams. So though they're his enemies, they know what he's saying. They just don't like it. Number one, interpretation. Shall you reign over us? And of course, they interpret their dreams with questions, but the question that they have actually shows the interpretation of the dream. And then the other one is, shall we all bow down before you? Now, spoiler alert, they will. And we'll get to those circumstances. But then in verse 11, we have... Two responses to Joseph's dreams. Number one, his brothers that hated him, now they envy him. They envy what he's saying. They envy the possibility because they're going, well, so far he's already got my dad's favorite. Now he's going to reign over us too. So they envy him. They want something from him that's not theirs. And then his father, though he rebukes him for this dream, noticed that he kept the matter in his mind. Why do you think this is? Perhaps it's because Jacob, in Genesis 28, had had a similar dream previously. Jacob's received dreams from God before. And the dreams, had he shared them with Esau, Esau would have hated and wanted to murder him even more. And so, he remember, he was resting on his way, running away from his brother, but also going to Paddan Aram to get his wife, and he lays down with his head on a rock, and the Lord reveals this ladder. He's like, what's this ladder about? And on the ladder are angels ascending and descending into heaven, and then God speaks from above the ladder up in heaven. And we find out in John chapter 1, verse 51, that it had nothing to do with Jacob, although it did have to do with his descendants, that the latter itself was the main purpose of the dream. That's Jesus. Jesus is the, 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 the bridge between heaven and earth. It wasn't a ladder, but it was a bridge to get to a place that man can't get on his own. And then the angels ascending and descending were actually the those who minister and serve, the, those who inherit salvation. And so all that said, that's why I think that we have Jacob here hearing Joseph's dreams, rebuking him for it, and at the same time, 
keeping them in mind going, I wonder what this all means. Interestingly enough, if you jump to the New Testament, there was a young lady, many believe she was about 13 to 15 years old, who conceived with the Holy Spirit and was given a vision from an angel that her son would be the son of God. And it says after she received this message from the angel, she kept all these things in her heart to think and ponder what could this possibly mean. And so interesting how God reveals himself to those who are willing to be his servants. So Joseph's brothers begin to, in the narrative, reveal that they are true sons of Jacob, but not Jacob's new nature. Remember, he wrestled with God. God weakened him, and Jacob's become subservient to God rather than always rebelling and scheming. And yet his sons are very much like him before he was converted. And so in verse 12, it continues on and says, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Uh Uh-oh, there's Shechem again. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So Joseph's brothers, out on the road, they're working. They're staying with the sheep. Joseph, at home, comfortable, middle management, getting ready to be sent out to check on the the peons. And so it says, Joseph responded to his father and said, here I am. So then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So go check up on your brothers. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go on to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So as he's left Hebron, verse 12, Shechem is actually about 90 miles from Hebron. So this was no short journey. So he's, he's going on a business trip. He's going to check on the factory for the sheepfold. And when he gets there, he finds that his brothers are not only not there, but they're further away from home. So they were in Dothan. And they, in verse 18, will see him coming and begin to plot against him. So verse 18, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Wow. So if you wonder what does it matter if someone hates another, you could see that this wasn't something that they just decided today. This is something they'd been pondering on for a long time. Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Great, I'm glad you haven't murdered anybody, but do you know where murder starts? It begins with hating your brother in your heart. And so Joseph is getting ready to, even though he knows his brothers hate him, he's getting ready to enter into a very hostile environment. Now, if his dad was paying attention at all, I don't think he would have sent him into these circumstances. But it seems like Jacob is not paying attention to his sons. And so then they said to one another, verse 19, Look, this dreamer is coming. 
Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the artsy one. Here comes the one that doesn't have to do anything. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. He's dreamed that he's going to reign over us. Why don't we kill his dreams? And so Reuben heard it. Now Reuben's the oldest. And he delivered them out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben, the oldest, though he was with his brothers, had mercy. He had compassion. I wonder, I wonder. This is all I'm doing. I'm not teaching something. I'm pondering something, which means it's more of a devotional thought than something that I'm going to plant my flag on. But I wonder if Reuben had any regret about killing the entire town of Shechem. Remember a few chapters back, uh, or was it, was it Reuben? I think it was Reuben. Was it not? Like I said, forget that. Maybe I pondered too far. But maybe Reuben watched his brothers. And maybe Reuben regretted sin in his own life. Reuben was the one that took two of his father's concubines and lay with them. Uh, One of them. All that to say, like I said, this is really deep stuff. So anyway, I wonder if Reuben had some regret as an older brother, watching his younger brothers going, hey, wait a minute, why are we going to kill our brother? Maybe he was the only one with a cooler head that prevailed. So he says, why don't we just throw him in a pit? Don't kill him. Just throw him in the pit you were going to throw him in afterwards. And really, he, what he was doing is trying to deceive his brother so he could come back later and deliver him back to his father. He was trying to save his life. And I love this because even in the midst of all of his brothers wanting to kill him, there was one guy that said, I, I really, he didn't have the boldness to say this is ridiculous, but he did have the boldness to try to scheme and get his brother to be delivered. But all that to say, they're in Dothan. They're very far away from home. They see him coming. They plot against him. And it says there that they throw him in the pit, as Reuben suggested. So as they throw him in the pit, they don't kill him. But it came to pass, verse 23, that when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. To strip him of his tunic is not just to take his clothes from him. They were obviously going to do that so they could dip it in blood and make it look like they didn't kill him, but that a wild beast got him and that they just found the remains. But to strip him of his tunic is really symbolic of stripping him of his authority. They didn't respect him as a boss, so they didn't kill him, but they did strip him of his garments that said he's in charge. They stripped him of his authority without killing him. And I think many times we do that when we look at our bosses or those who are in authority over us, maybe our parents, and we strip them of authority, not so much by by actually killing their character or or mouthing them to their faces, but we, 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 we murmur against them and we try to discredit them amongst those that are supposed to be serving them. And we discredit our boss by mouthing them behind their backs. 
Now here they did it physically. They removed his garment that signified that he was an authority over them. And then they took him and they cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So it was a cistern. It was a well. So they didn't drown him. It makes emphasis on that. And then they sat down to eat. How heartless are they? They throw their brother into a pit. And then they're like, hey, what do you guys want to eat for lunch? What do you you want to eat? They're so brazen again. They, They hate him. They want him dead. They do not care about him at all. They were not just having good brotherly fun. They weren't just picking at him. So they sat down to eat a meal. And then they lifted their eyes and looked. And guess what? An opportunity. There was a company of Ishmaelites, descendants of Ishmael, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. They were traders. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and we conceal his blood? We could make a few bucks off of this. So we're not just going to get rid of him. Why don't we get a little bit of increase for our labor? And so, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. Technically, we're doing a good thing. We're not killing him. We'll just sell him. For he's our brother in our flesh. Why would we kill him? And his brothers listened. And then Midianite traders passed by. And so the brothers pulled Joseph up. They lifted him out of the pit. And they sold him to Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And so they sell him into slavery. Now they don't kill him, so that's a wonderful thing. But they do sell him. And notice this, verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit. Indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. Reuben came back to get him. And he tore his clothes in mourning. He returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more. Where shall I go? How can I go home, having not protected my brother? So they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of the goats. This is one of the the young goats. And they dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the tunic of many colors. They brought it to the father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. And a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Now, in the life of Jacob, had there been a garment ever used against him in the same way? Had a kid of goats been killed for his own purposes. Remember, uh, Jacob's getting ready to bless, uh, excuse me, Isaac is getting ready to bless Esau. So his mother schemed and said, kill a kid of the goats. I'll prepare him. He said, well, my my dad's going to know it's me. He's he's not going to think that it's Esau. My, My brother's hairy. He's manly. I'm not like him. I smell like cooking in the house. I don't smell like the field. And so they killed the kid of the goats, and they took the blood, they drained it, they cooked the animal, and then they took the skin of the goat, and they covered Jacob with it. And when they covered Jacob, he didn't recognize him. He didn't see the child of the flesh Esau. He saw Jacob as Esau. He was covered in the garment of his brother. Much like we, by the way, I might be jumping ahead, 
are covered in the garment of salvation. Do you know that when God looks down upon you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your scheming, he doesn't see your flesh, but instead he sees the righteous blood of Jesus covering you and making you righteous, making you something that you're not? Now, here in this story, we see that they're using the blood and the garment as something to cover up sin, right? Sound familiar? And so, verse 34, Then Jacob tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his waist, he mourned for his son many days, and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. How hypocritical. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. I'll mourn the rest of the days of my life. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to a man by the name of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guard. And so we see that Joseph's story continues even though they wanted it to end. But where I want to stop with today is do the circumstances agree with Joseph's dream? God gave Joseph a dream. You're going to reign over your brothers. He actually gave it twice, which emphasizes the dream and its interpretation. Can man, even wicked man, that didn't get the dream, do something in order to stop God's plans? Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, uh, and it's super important, it says there, We know, it says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined, or he chose ahead of time. And my answer to that is that what man can do to us cannot mess up God's plans. By the way, that includes you. We can't mess up God's plans for us. Trust me, I know this personally. That what you can do and you think you can get in God's way, you're not that powerful. Because even the worst things that we do, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, He can turn them. He can work together with them according to His good will, His good purposes. Now what is His purpose for those that He loves? says that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? Well, verse 29 goes on to say, those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what's interesting is that Joseph is called by God to reign over a group of people that he's related to, but perhaps at this point, his character isn't ready for his calling. God has to develop the character of Joseph so that he can be a godly leader rather than just a leader. Does that make sense? I I don't want a 17-year-old kid that just spouts off and makes everybody angry to be in control or in power over a group of people. Perhaps he's not ready yet. And so he is sold by his brothers, but according to the will of God, he's going to be prepared in this trial. How does God make us look like Jesus? How does God make our character what it's supposed to be so that we can do what we're called to be? Through trials. And you're thinking, thanks for that. I don't like trials. 
I want to be like Jesus, but I don't want to go the way of the cross. I want to be like Jesus, but I don't want to learn obedience through suffering like he did. Well, guess what? You don't get to skip to the end. That's the bad news, right? But the good news is, is that suffering in this life leads to glorification. Because God reveals Jesus to the world as we suffer and go through the fire. He refines us. First Peter chapter 1 says that he develops our character, and our character to him is much more precious to him than gold or silver, which is refined by fire. Now, fire doesn't feel good, but fire does produce precious metals. So through us, while we're under fire, God develops our character in fire, not in ease. Think about it this way. Will Joseph's character develop better in hardship or at home as an overseer in the coat of many colors, in the recliner while his brothers are working? And I would submit to you that character will be better developed where the rubber meets the road. But none of his brothers know this. None of them know that God is not only preparing salvation for the world, he's preparing salvation for them. Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. His death was, by the way, for the people that killed him, as well as it was for you and I. Joseph being sold into slavery was for the benefit of not only the whole nation that's going to go through a deadly famine, but it was also for his brothers that would experience the same famine. And so, what do we see this morning as we close? Oh, look, there he is. It's Jesus. Joseph, look at this. Greatly loved and favored by his father. Hated. How many times do we see the word hate today? Hated, 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 and then envied greatly by his brothers. So much so that when they're out working and he shows up, they immediately go, okay, what are we going to do to kill him? Plotted against sold into slavery by his brothers, arrested unjustly, made to suffer. Later in his story, he will be arrested for something he did not do, made to suffer, and yet became the savior for the people who rejected him. That's the life of Joseph in a nutshell. So Joseph was all those things, But Joseph was and is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is baptized, and when he comes up from being baptized, it says there that his father spoke audibly from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Guess what? He was hated for that. He was hated and envied greatly by his brothers. See that in John 15 and Mark 15 plotted against. Luke chapter 22, verse 2 says that as he's sharing truth, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they all heard what he said and immediately started to plot a way to kill him. Think about it. Joseph came from a long way. Jesus descended from heaven, was born of a woman, born through a town that, can anything good come from Nazareth? Came a long distance longer than any of us can travel on earth, left heaven to come to earth. And then when he gets there, to come to his very people that he chose and made a nation, 
They would not receive him, his own brothers. They sold him as a slave. He was sold for the price of a slave. 20 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave in Joseph's day. And in Jesus' day, it was 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold him for profit. He was unrested unjustly. In Luke chapter 23, it says that Pontius Pilate could find no fault in Jesus. And he was no small judge. He knew what he was doing. He was a prosecutor from way back. Could find no fault in Jesus. A Gentile. But then also, it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 55 through 56, that the Jews, seeking a way to prove him guilty, it says they could find no fault in him, so they had paid witnesses to give false charges against him. And yet none of their stories agreed. It was a terrible prosecution process. He was made to suffer. But in John chapter 10, as he's speaking to Pontius Pilate, he says, it was God's plan for him to suffer for our sin, right? But he was also a willing sufferer. He, he suffered willingly. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down because there's greater love that no one can show than they, he laid down his life for his friends. And then Jesus became the savior for the people who rejected him. And in John chapter 14, verse six, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the only way you can be saved. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says this. Peter says this at the end of his sermon. He says, he says uh, this is the stone, verse 11, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Joseph learned through the school of hard knocks, and just like Jesus, he was a willing participant. And yet in his life, Joseph didn't know that as he suffered, and we'll look through the details and the narrative of his suffering, he had no idea what he was portraying in his life. And yet what it says there is that everywhere he went, even when he was away from his family, he was living constantly, karam deo, in the presence of his father, in the very presence of God, when no one else was around. He's going to have the opportunity. He's going to be tempted to sexually sin with his boss's wife. And he says, I can't do this because I, I don't want to sin against my God. And when he suffered unjustly, and he interpreted dreams for people, and they were embittered, and later he'll have the opportunity to forgive the people that sold him into slavery, and he will reflect the very character of Jesus. Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They didn't know what they were doing. And Joseph will say when his brothers see him face to face, they bow down to him. He's going to look at them eye to eye and he's going to forgive them and say, you meant this for evil, but God, my God meant this for good. He's going to be able to see things through the lens of eternal perspective and even physical perspective. He's going to be able to feed the entire known world at the time because he was sold into slavery just like the bread of life does. 
sold into slavery, and yet his body and his blood sufficient to save anyone and everyone on the entire earth. What an amazing picture. What a blessing. And so, Father, as we get ready to take communion, and as we look at what it cost, the high cost of sin for our salvation, and we think about what that might look like personally for us in the fellowship of suffering with Jesus or suffering for the purpose of Jesus, we know that we learn and we gain character by experiencing trials. But what we often aren't able to see in the moment is that how we handle trials reveals Jesus to the world. It reveals Jesus to our families. You reveal Jesus to our coworkers. You reveal Jesus to people we don't even know as they watch us suffer with dignity and trusting the Father. And so, Father, I don't know what anybody else is experiencing in here, but for each one of us that will suffer and experience trials just due to the fact that that's what life is like, I pray that you would give us the extra measure of faith to trust that if we're experiencing trials, it's for our good to develop us and conform us and make us look more like Jesus, but that it's also for the good of the world that might get to see Jesus spilling out of our cracks as we experience the stress of life. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we remember you, we take of your body, and we remember your blood in completely poured out for us on the cross, that, Father, you would give us the perspective that we need to remember that no suffering in Jesus is wasted, that you use every piece of it, and we may not get to know even on this side of heaven what it was for, but we can trust you that you're with us and that you're going to use it to glorify your son, Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, help us to see things through that lens. Add to your glory through our lives, laid down for you. In Jesus' name, amen.